0: So uh, today we're, we're continuing a series that we've been in. Uh, Jacob last week preached, uh, and we're calling it Pillars in the Psalms. Every year we explore the pillars of Risen Hope. So I'm gonna, d- Jacob did this last week, I'm gonna do it for you guys. What are the pillars? Except I'm not gonna answer this question. You guys are gonna have to answer it on your own. Pill- the first pillar, what's the one that we did last week? Centrality of Christ. Centrality of Christ, 10 points over here. <laughs> uh, wh- what's the next one? Sufficiency of scripture, amen. And the one after that? Love where you live. Family of faith. And the fourth one? Love where you live. Tim said it, love where you live. Love where, praise God. And those are pillars that we hold deep. And so what we do every year is we take a narrow lens uh, in the scriptures, we, we focus on one part of the Bible, and we ask, do we see that in this part of the Bible? Does this pillar show up here? If it's something so important, so central that we call it a pillar of the church, something that is in our foundation, something that holds us up, if it's that central, can we take any part in the scriptures and pull it out and say, I see that pillar woven into this part of the scriptures. We did it in the prophets last year. Before that, we did it in the parables of Jesus. And this year we are in the Psalms, the songbook of God. This is God's appointed songs, his prayers, the the. the, the the words that he's given us to speak back to him. And so the question last week and the question all this month, next two weeks as we have other gentlemen uh, bring us through this text, uh, is can these pillars be seen in the book of the Psalms? Can they be seen here? And um, do we see God, specifically as we think about the Psalms, calling his people to sing these truths to, to pray these truths back to him and to embrace them with every breath of our life. That's the, that's the question we have today. And today, as, as we said, it, we're looking at the sufficiency of scripture. Does God tell us in his word that his word is sufficient? Does he make that statement? And specifically, does he say that in the book of the Psalms? And I think what we first need to do before we, we look at the Psalms, we need to ask the question, what do we mean by sufficient? <laughs> when we say, <clears throat> the Bible and scripture is sufficient, what are we referring to? And here's the simple definition that we would refer to. We would say that the scriptures and at the center of the scriptures, the gospel of Jesus Christ, what everything in the the Bible's pointing to is sufficient to save, to sanctify, to sustain, to satisfy, to bring us all the way home to our God and King, Jesus Christ. That's what we mean by sufficient. So we're talking about the greatest possible realities. We're talking about eternity. We're talking about heaven. We're talking about being with Jesus forever. That's where scripture is sufficient. We don't need anything else. We've been given his own word. But, Is that how God views his word? Would he say to us, my word is sufficient? And would he say that in the Psalms? So if you have your Bibles, then I hope that you do, take them, turn with me to Psalm 19. And I think we're gonna find that he does believe his word is sufficient. Psalm 19, as you're turning there uh, to verse one, Psalm 19 was written by David. Um, Not all the Psalms are written by David, but he wrote this one in particular. And we're gonna look at the whole thing today. Uh, What we're gonna do is we're gonna go through this in three different sections. There's three different themes that are worked out in this psalm, and we're gonna break it up into those sections. The first will be one through six. So if you're a note taker and you love taking notes, this will hopefully be helpful to you. Verses one through six, then verses seven through 11, then verses 12 through 14. And my prayer for this us just exploring this passage is that we see the sufficiency of scripture and the insufficiency of anything else to do what scripture does in this, in our lives, in the world. And so let's begin with verses one through six. Here's David. David says, Psalm 1 through six. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through, through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, like a, a strong man runs its course with joy. It's rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. Now, remember, <laughs> this is a psalm, which means it is a song of the, the Psalter, the songbook of God. It is designed explicitly for worship. Um, it, some of these are poems. Some of these are, as we'll see in a moment, prayers. They are designed by God given to David and whatever, whoever the Psalmist is of a specific Psalm in order for God's people, for you and I to be invited into deeper worship. And this Psalm here is telling us that God's glory, his beauty, his worth, his majesty, his supremacy, who he really is. The Psalm is saying that all of that is communicated and declared in the heavens. God declares all of it through his handiwork of creating the sky, the heavens. And what I wanna do first when we think about this is just free you from the notion that this is a secondary role that the sky plays. Like the sky does all these other things and then it also does this. That's not what we should look at here. That, That it declaring God's glory is a side effect In addition, that's not the case at all. The main purpose of the sky, the main purpose of the cosmos and the universe splayed out before you when you look up on a night sky is for us to see it and for us to say in our hearts, God is glorious. God is glorious for making that. That's why the sky exists. That's reason number one why the sky exists. Everything else that the sky does, as important and as crucial and as necessary as it is, is secondary to that main reality, declaring his glory. David continues here in this passage saying that (laughs) that day to day and night, night to night, this message of God's glory is seen kind of like speech or words. It's like a declaration of knowledge communicated by the sky. So every day the sky is telling the same story that the creator and the sustainer of the universe, this, this endless expanse of stars, whoever made that and sustains that must be awesome. Therefore it's, it's a witness, not only to God's existence, it is a witness to his, unparalleled, infinite power and majesty. No other being could make that but God. So on a clear night, like I said earlier, when we, when we go outside and you guys, whoever's been camping knows this to be true, you go outside in the middle of nowhere, there's no light pollution coming up from cities and you look out into space and you see that cosmos staring back at you and what God wants us to feel there is something of his greatness something of his majesty, something of how awesome it is that he holds all of that together in the hollow of his hand. And it is next to him nothing. So David continues drawing us deeper into the the majesty of this sight in verse 3 by saying the, the voice and the words that God uses to communicate his glory in the sky is heard by every single person on the planet. Nobody who can see the sky, or everyone who's, who's, who's able to see the sky has heard this voice. Everyone who's, who's known about the sky's existence has heard this same voice. It's heard in their, their souls clearly every time we look up. And David gives a profound example here. He continues in verse, at the end of verse four saying, think about the sun. The sun, well, let, me, let me just read it. Verse four, in them, that is in the voice, that is in the heavens, God has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, he says, leaving his chamber, like a strong man, runs its course with joy, its rising is from the end of heavens, its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. So, so even if we couldn't see the sun hap- doing this, he, right here, he says, when we feel its warmth, we know it's there. There's nothing hidden from the sun's heat. He describes the sun in this beautiful, almost marriage-like, wedding-like language. He says, sun's like at dawn, the bridegroom leaving his chamber and, and he's running. He's running across the sky to pursue his bride. It's like a strong man who's in a dead sprint and running that course with joy. That's what the sun looks like from our vantage point. He's not giving a scientific statement. He's saying when we stand here and we see the sun move, that's what it looks like. The sun is in a dead run from one horizon to the next. And the heat of the sun invades every square inch of our world so that there's nothing and no one that is hidden from its heat. And David's main point here is that Everyone's heard this, everyone's seen this, everyone knows this, everyone's felt this reality at some level. But here's the thing, make no mistake about it, this voice and this message is not good news for everyone. It's not good news for everyone. In fact, it is bad news for people who hear this voice looking up into the sky and seeing the heavens and then turn away and reject the Creator. It is bad news. In fact, it is the worst news in the world. And we know this because Paul tells us this very thing in Romans 1. Listen to Paul in Romans 1.18. He's going to, I mean, the whole Bible gives us examples of this, but Paul's going to explain why this voice isn't good news. Um, For the people who reject it, it is the worst news in the world. So Romans 1.18. the the wrath of God, Paul says, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, listen to this, suppress the truth. For, he's going to explain why, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them section of Romans is that creation, like the heavens, like the sun, (laughs) have shown the world clearly that there is a God and that he deserves to be honored. He deserves to be thanked. He deserves to be loved and cherished for making this world for us. And yet, you know, and I know the world by and large doesn't feel this way about God. Paul says they suppress the truth. They see the reality before them and they come up with reasons not to believe it. They turn away from the sky and say in their hearts, big deal, they'll look up at the the, the sky into the endless expanse of the cosmos and say that's an accident. Nobody meant that. And Paul's telling us this is why the world is broken. This is why the world is under God's wrath. This is why he subjected the world to futility according to Romans 8. This is why people die. This is why there's a virus in the world. This is why there's sin, war, racism, enmity. This is why 2020 is the way it is. Because of this fundamental reality, we've rejected God. And God is in his providential grace showing us how tragic it is to reject him and to dishonor him in this way by taking up his universe that he loves, that he made, that he created, and breaking it in such a way to communicate to us what it looks like for people to reject his glory. That's why we have the world we have. So that no one on the last day, no one on the last day, I don't care how how hardened of an atheist, I don't care how, how confident they are in their assertions and their proofs, no one on the last day will be able to stand before God and say, I never knew. Because somewhere deep down inside, they have known because as Paul says in verse 19, he's shown it to them. They know, yet they reject him. And everything broken in this world reveals how serious God takes that rejection takes the dishonoring of his name. But at this point, you might be asking, Jeremy, that's great, that's fine, but what in the world does that have to do with the sufficiency of scripture? What does Romans 1.18 have to do with the Bible being sufficient? I'm glad you asked, thank you for asking. (laughs) The answer to that question is everything. It has everything to do with Romans one has everything to do with the sufficiency of scripture, because it tells us that although creation has indisputably and clearly displayed God and given a testimony to his glory and to his worth, it cannot save anyone. The expanse of the cosmos above our heads cannot save a single Soul, creation can show us that there is a God and show us that he is awesome and glorious and he deserves to be worshiped. But it cannot break through the hardness of our heart. It cannot break through our sin. It cannot break through our rebellion and save us. And that's what the rest of Psalm 19 shows us. So let me read now, going back to Psalm 19, verses seven through 11. David says, the law of the Lord Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, he says, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. So the heavens may declare the glory of God profoundly, but they do not do this. They cannot do this. What we see here is David's laying out the law, of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the rules of the Lord. And that's what all this is. He's gathering up all the different things that God has said, his word, his promises, his testimony, what he's spoken of to humanity. And he's saying, this is God's word and this can do that. It can revive the soul. It can give you uh, joy. It can do all of these things. Now no doubt David has in mind primarily the Mosaic law, the Torah, the first five books of the, of the Bible. That was his Bible then. Um, it, in, in the Torah, you know, tells the story of God's people. It gives a testimony to who God is, His faithfulness, His goodness. It tells them the nature of their covenant, what He expects from them. It is God's word to his people. David is looking at the Torah, but think about this: you and I in our Bible, have an even fuller testimony. We have the New Testament. We have everything that the Torah was pointing to in types and shadows. We have the fullness of Christ Jesus in our Bible. So how much more is what he's saying about the law true about what we have? And if, we're, if, if he says that this is true about the law, we should recognize that when we look at the New Testament and just the centrality, it's focus on Jesus Christ, what the law was pointing to, that we have something that we should feel the same exact emotion about, that we should be governed by in the same way. So let's look at each of these. We'll start with verse seven. Verse seven says, "'The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise of the simple.'" So after saying all the things that creation can do, that the sky looking up in the, into the, the heavens can do, he says the only thing that can revive a soul though, the only thing that can make the wise simple is the word of God, because it is perfect and it is sure. It can take someone who is dead in their hearts and their affections for God and bring them to life. It can take someone who's, who's foolish about the things of God and give them divine wisdom so that they can finally see God for who He is. And Paul, prior to the passage that we just read in, in Romans 1, almost like immediately before the passage we read in, in verse 1, or in Romans 1: 1, 116, Paul gives his reader before he talks about the wrath of God being poured out on. on the world, he gives his reader a glimpse into the solution for that wrath. He says in Romans 1:16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, why are you not ashamed of the gospel, Paul? What's the reason that you have to not be ashamed? Well, he tells us, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. In other words, the gospel can revive a soul. That's why he's not ashamed of it. It can revive a soul. It is that powerful. It is that sufficient. It can take a dead heart and make that heart alive. <laughs> David continues in verse eight. He says, the precepts, precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Now, what does he mean here? What he's saying here is the rightness and the purity of God's word, his precepts, his commandments, what he's told us can open eyes and cause hearts to rejoice. That's what he means. Eyes are enlightened like Ephesians one tells us. And, And he's not talking about these eyes here. We can see fine with these eyes. He's talking about these eyes, the eyes of the heart, the eyes of the soul that were made explicitly by God to see who he is. And, What he's saying here is that our eyes are enlightened. When we read his word, when we read his testimony, when we see God in his word, something happens in us that opens our eyes to its truthfulness, to its glory, to its beauty. We see him in a way that we couldn't see him before. And our response to that sight, to what we see in the word is joy. It is the rejoicing of the heart. It is joy in God from the depths of our soul. Creation can show us God's glory very well, but we need our eyes opened to see beyond stars in space and say, who it is that made that? Who is it that made that? And why would he make that for us to see? And that's that's what's happening in verse eight. Verse nine continues David's exaltation in the scriptures by saying, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So if you look at this closely, you'll notice he shifts his language here. He's not just describing what God's word does, which the first few sections did. He is describing what God's word is the fear of the Lord. So what we see in the text, the realities that are unfolded in the scriptures is clean, he says, enduring forever. Clean. So clean, so pure that it will never ever die or be broken or be tarnished. And we see this connection between purity and between enduring forever in First Peter. Um, first Peter, Peter talks about our obedience to the truth, our obedience to the gospel, believing and receiving in Jesus Christ and how when we embrace the gospel, when we embrace God's word, it purifies us, purifies our hearts because it himself, the, God's word is imperishable. Listen to Peter's language here. First Peter 1.22 is where it starts. He says, first Peter 1.22, having purified your soul's, So think about this, purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have, listen to this, been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And then he gives an example from the Old Testament. All flesh is like grass. All its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word, Peter says, is the good news that was preached to you. So Peter is saying here, God's word endures forever. It remains forever. And that word, the gospel, the good news about Jesus that was preached to us is clean It is true, it is pure, it is righteous, and therefore, in his mind, he says, logically, it will endure forever. It is an imperishable seed. So to try to bring this into our frame, our modern frame of thinking, think about something that is unalloyed, unadulterated, like solid iron. It is unbreakable. That's God's word. And when we just imagine everything else in the universe that's been created, Every other thing in the universe that's been created, we cannot say that that will remain forever. It has an expiration date on it, but God's word never has an expiration date on it. God's word will remain forever. What he's told us will endure for all time. And for those who have been gripped by this, for those who have received this with gladness and keep it and treasure it, the imperishable realities of that word take root in their soul and they will endure forever as well. This is speaking into the resurrection, speaking into eternal life, which is precisely where David goes next. So back in Psalm 19 verse 10 and 11, listen to this. David says about God's words that they are more to be desired than gold even much fine gold. They are sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, David says, by them your servant is warned in keeping them, there is great reward. So God's rules, his word, his testimony, his promises, all of those things are more to be desired according to David here, who's being led by the Holy Spirit, so according to God, They are more to be desired than the finest gold in the world. They are sweeter than the sweetest possible honey or any, he uses honey here because that was the sweetest thing they had back then. As sweet as you can imagine. That's what he's trying to, to draw out from this text. It's not just objectively good. I think we think about things abstractly. Oh yeah, God's word's good. This is, this is, Sen- these are sensations. These are, these are parts of David's being that are, that are craving this, desiring this. When you are gripped by God's word, when you see it rightly, it will become the sweetest treasure in your life. You will go to it every day because you can't help yourself. Not because, it's, not because it's tough, but because you just can't help yourself. You need to be with him in this book. You need to meet with him in this book. And then David turns here You notice his shift in language from talking about God and his word to now addressing God. This psalm is about to become a prayer. It's it's been a prayer the entire time, but it's about to become very clearly a prayer to God. Look at his words. He says, your servant. So he's addressing God. He's talking to God about himself. By them, your servant, me, is warned. It's not just better than gold. It's not just sweeter than honey. It's not just the greatest treasure that you've given your people, your word, your promises. It is in fact the difference between life and death. It is warning and reward. Proverbs 14, 12, you guys probably know this text already. Like there is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way to death. And then Jesus in Matthew 7, remember he said, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter it are many for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. This is what David's talking about. David's holding out warning and reward. There's there's death and then there's life. There's a way that seems right to man and then there's God's way which he's given to us in his scripture. The narrow way, the hard way, that gate and way can only be found by God's word, by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, before we read this third section, I wanna just pause, and we're gonna complete Psalm 19 in just a second, but I wanna pause and I wanna just ask, your, ask this question. <laughs> Do the Psalms, so far, show us that scripture is sufficient? Do they show us that scripture is sufficient? Amen. Yeah, absolutely is the answer. Absolutely. In fact, they tell us here, David tells us that everything else is insufficient to do what scripture needs to do. The entire universe can't accomplish what God's words can accomplish. God's word alone is sufficient to revive the soul, to to open eyes, to, to ignite joy in our hearts, to bring us ultimately home to him. And if we see it rightly, If we see this book and what the reality is in this book rightly, we will love it and treasure it and long to be with God in his word. But David's not done here. We're going to look at this final section in Psalm 19. So verse 12, this song has now become a prayer and it's taking David into a place that is very intense. It's it's not simply talking about reality out here. He's now recognizing that the glory of God in creation, the glory of God in his word has put him in a very humbled posture. Listen to this verse 12. He says, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocence of great transgression. And then he pleads with God, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. When I read that passage, the first question I ask is, do I pray like this? Do I pray and plead to God with words like these? And I hope that one of the exercises we have by going through the Songbook book of God, where we have all these prayers, all these songs, is that we see why it is God gives us these prayers. Why it is he gives us these songs. It's so that we can embrace them and make them our own. They're for us, they're for you. So after considering Um, the glory of God in creation and the glory of God in his word, David is effectively saying here to God, have mercy upon me. He recognizes his sinfulness, his brokenness. He's saying, protect me from sins. Even the sins that I can't see, declare me innocent from these sins that I just don't, I don't see I'm committing them, but I'm doing them in ignorance or keep me from like deliberate presumptuous sins that threaten to take dominion over me. He's pleading with God for blamelessness. He's asking God to make him innocent of great transgressions. And he's doing that not because he deserves that. David recognizes he has not warranted or earned blamelessness a single day in his life. But in seeing God in his word and and looking at the face of God in the scriptures, in the Torah for him, he has been brought very low and he has been humbled. And it's in that place for David and it's in that place for us where we plead with God to powerfully, to sovereignly make our words and, and in our thoughts pleasing and acceptable to him. We need to see him in our word to get in the posture of of being humbled before his glory where we can recognize our own need for a rock, our own need for a redeemer, our own need for someone to be there with us and to pay for our own sinfulness and our own uh, futility. It's in that place in, 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 a, in what is effectively a, a sea of, of hopelessness and desperation and sinfulness that we need a rock to stand on. We need, we need, we need we, in an ocean of, of unbelief and of sinfulness, we need someone who can redeem us from all of that. And that's what David's seeing here as he looks in the scriptures. And the rock and the redeemer is Jesus Christ. And more clearly, it is the cross of Jesus Christ at the center of human history. The main, the main point of every single thing in this book, the main point, of every single thing in this book is Jesus Christ. Jesus is our rock. Jesus is our redeemer. And this is where David goes to at the end. He doesn't know Jesus personally, but he knows the need for Jesus. He knows the need for Christ. He knows that an anse- or a descendant of his is going to rise one day and do what needs to be done. And Jesus, the rock, the redeemer, gave his life so that we could have his word. The reason we have this isn't because we're good, isn't because of anything I've done. The reason we have God's word is because God in advance paid for us to have it by sending his son to die. His his life purchased this book. The, The sufficiency of scripture to be all that we need was purchased by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And so what I wanna do is I wanna press our hearts um, on this, that when we say, when we individually say, hey, my church has four pillars, one of the pillars is sufficiency of scripture, that we mean it. That it, it's not just an abstract idea, that it is a reality in our daily lives, that we constantly rely on his word, we constantly rely on his, his gospel to, to save us, to sustain us, to satisfy us, that it's sufficient. Scripture really is sufficient to meet every need that we have. So when we think about the sufficiency of Scripture, I, I want our hearts to recognize that when we think about the the, 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 the gospel in the Bible and all that God said, we are recognizing that it points directly to our greatest need: His Son. Because there's another son, we, Psalm 19, we see a son, that's running its course with joy, but there's another son, a true son, who left his chamber for his bride. And he ran his course with joy. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, Hebrews 12, that he might redeem us by the blood of that cross. Scripture, when you're with God in the morning, 5 a.m., 6 a.m. or in the evening, scripture is where we meet with Jesus, the rock, the redeemer. And so hear me, Risen Hope. We need to be in this book. I know that you know this because we're in this book every week together. Um, Not just if we have time, not just if we can find room for it in our schedules. This is the most important thing for us to read. There is nothing in the world like meeting with Jesus and that's what this book is for, for us to meet with him. Every other th- single thing that we read in this, in, this, in this world, and there are a lot of great things to read. I am not against reading other things in the Bible, but every other thing that we read in this world, as glorious as it is, as awesome and entertaining as it is, is infinitely secondary to this main reality, being with Jesus in his word, reading his word, embracing him, And I want to feel the weight of that with you today. The book, if you've got your Bible with you, I'm holding it in my hand. The book for you watching online, the book you're holding in your hand right now, the words on the pages, the realities that they speak about have eternal power. It's the most powerful thing in the universe. There is nothing like it can change your life forever. And I don't say forever lightly. It is not a relic that you put in a museum. It is not something that just collects dust next to your bed. It is, a, it is really a window into the true real world that we can't see because of all of our affections. It's a window into reality and into God. And so for the next few moments, as we worship in song um, and participate in the Lord's Supper, there's single communion cups out there. uh, So when we start singing, if you don't have one, you can grab one. If your faith is in Christ Jesus, you are invited to participate in communion. And what I'd like you to, to just think about and consider and pause as you do that is that when we say Scripture is sufficient, that that there is a sufficiency to Scripture. We are saying at Risen Hope that although the heavens declare the glory of God, it is His word alone that can save us. His word alone. Therefore, therefore, we give ourselves completely to this book. Every day we come to it and we drink of the glory of God that is better than gold, sweeter than honey, and is our treasure, it's, it's where we meet Jesus. And I can promise you this, just my own experience, I can promise you just from what I see in the scriptures and my own experience, you will never regret a moment with Jesus, you will never regret one. There will never be a point where you look back and said, I really wish I didn't spend time in the word with Jesus this morning, it will never happen. I can make that promise very, very, very safely you will never regret a moment that, that, that you're with him because you were made for him. You were made to be with him. And this book is designed by God to bring us into the presence of our rock and our redeemer and allow us to know him and treasure him and fall deeper in love with him, which is what we were made to do. Let's pray, risen hope. Father God, your your glory in creation is almost too great for us to even be able to comprehend or speak about. David does a great job here in the psalm, but it is immense in its greatness and majestic in its power, Father, to see the universe spread out before us. Um, but just to think that we have a book in our hands that has your words in it. Your thoughts, your desires, your purposes, and your promises is almost too great to believe. It is too great to believe apart from your your divine, gracious, eye-opening And so I I pray right now, Father God, that as Ephesians 1 says, that you will enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we would see you in your word. That our times in scripture would not be trudging around, reading things that don't have any pull on our affections, but that we would see your glory clearly and we would become addicted to it. That we couldn't, we couldn't pull away, that we have to fight to pull away from it. That we always make sure to have time with you. No matter if it feels like you're far from us or close to us, we know you're there with us in the word. Grant us, Father, eyes to see that. And I pray that you just give us a hunger for your word. Make us creatures of your word. May it be a problem in our lives that we can't get out of this book because it's sufficient. In the name of Jesus Christ, I ask these things, amen.